Hello, welcome to another episode of the Capital Employed Podcast. Joining me in conversation for this episode was Richard DeLisle, Founder and Investment Manager of DeLisle Partners. In this episode, Richard provides an overview of the VT DeLisle American Fund, which focuses on US small caps. He also talks about two companies in his portfolio that he is very bullish on. I really enjoyed listening to him and I think you will too. Before we jump into this episode, do make sure to add your email to the Capital Employed email list. We will be publishing some exclusive interviews that will only be available to those on the list. To receive these bonus episodes, please visit capitalemployed.fm forward slash exclusive and add your email to the list. Okay, please enjoy my conversation with Richard. Hi Richard, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Hi John, thank you for inviting me. Can you provide an overview of the VT DLL American Fund and uh, what is the investment style? Okay, so we've got a, a USITS3 type fund here called the VT DLL American Fund, which um, I started in 2005 to run alongside a pro bono fund I ran for Emmanuel College, Cambridge, which I've been running from 1996. So that's how long we've been going. And the investment style is I tried to position both these funds in the best asset class in the world, which is based on the very long-term data, and that is uh, US small cap value. US is the best major market over 100 years, and small cap is, the, is the, an outperforming asset class, smaller the better, and uh, value is the best investment style. So I sort of thought that we could combine all those and then we'd have the best of all worlds. The slight problem with that is that since, uh, since 2006, value has been a badly underperforming investment style. And uh, it might surprise people to know that uh, even after 14 years of underperformance, it's still the best style in the very long term because the long-term data is so overwhelmingly powerful. We've stayed with small cap value throughout the bad years and, and doing some ducking and weaving. I'm pleased to say that um, our compound return over the last 10 years is 16.8% at the moment. So uh, that means if you put a pound in at the time when we converted to a USITS 3 in August uh, 2010, it would now be £5.50. That beats the S&P. Um, I'm told it beats any UK funds, actually, but we're not really compared to that. When I say we've been plodding along in hard times, you know, it's, it's been making good money. But now I think I'm rather pleased you caught me today, John, because I don't know if you know that we're the, the front page of the uh, online FT today is telling us that uh, small cap value has had its um, biggest explosive run in the last six months since 1943. And that's the sort of thing we really would expect coming off this pandemic low. And I'm pleased to say we're experiencing it. So we are rigidly stuck in small cap value. We will absolutely not be tempted away uh, by any, any idea that our stocks are doing well, any idea that other people's stocks are doing badly. We've been the top fund in North America out of the 211 listed in the UK for the last few months now, which isn't a surprise because we're in small cap value. 
in March for a few weeks, we were number one out of the 4,200 funds, which is all funds in the UK. This is trailing one-year numbers. So we're very much in the zone and we're racing. But this is like an elastic band pinging back from the, an extreme undervaluation. I think it's worthwhile saying that by the time the vaccine came out on November the 9th last year, value against growth was the most compressed it had been since 1904. In other words, the 14 years of underperformance of value had made value stocks the most compressed in more than 100 years against growth stocks. And I know that sort of statistic immediately gets everyone saying, what happened in 1904? That was the year that Standard Oil peaked, only 90% of the US energy market, 90% of energy distribution in that year, and it was broken up shortly afterwards. So that was why growth was predominant in 1904. And interestingly enough, the argument um, mirrors today, because in the last few years, growth has been predominant also because of monopoly practices. The big tech get bigger because they've had a monopoly. Monopoly legislation is way behind. So, uh, John, I'm digressing. I'm just saying that why our investment style has been out of favor, and the reason it's come back with a bang value and small does well in normal times. It does not do well when the economy is hitting a sudden recession. It does not do well when the economy is crawling along very slowly. And that has been the case for the last 14 years as interest rates have tended on down towards zero and the economy has been crawling along. We've had two savage recessions in 2008 and and again last year. And these are the worst possible things for our asset class. And suddenly, we've got US GNP, UK GNP, any GNP you like, uh, in prospect for um, this year with the fastest growth since 1973. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, you know, when we're having this conversation, and I'm just using these numbers, you know, fastest growth um, since 1973, you know, biggest compression since 1904. This is not, we're not talking about you know, a 10-year cycle here. We're talking about all-time cycles and we're coming off an all-time low in interest rates. So, you know, it's not normal. I'll just say, oh, well, we've been the top fund for the last few months. I mean, catch me any time in the last 15 years and we wouldn't have been. I was reading your um, recent monthly letter and I noticed uh, you wrote about how this is a kind of historic turning point point in your favour and that you were comparing it kind of to the 1950s. I thought that was quite interesting. What happens in the 1950s is that in 1946, America decides that they really better help Europe out after the Second World War. So they give give Europe lots of money in 1946, and that's the analogy with now. That was called the Marshall Plan, put together by our British economist, Keynes. And today, you've got the same thing happening. You've got the the Biden infrastructure plan, which is off to a faster start than... um, Anything else, and that people will say, oh, hold on, what about Roosevelt's New Deal in 19, 1933? No, it's bigger than that. And it's bigger than Johnson's Big Society in 1968. This is a really big thing. By analogy, uh, we then look at, well, what did happen after the Marshall Plan was put to work? What did happen in the 1950s? Well, small cap value was a wonderful place to be. But what was happening was that Europe was being rebuilt. Industrial stocks were the outperforming group, it may come as no surprise that we have a good weighting in industrial stocks today. 
So coming back to the um, micro, what, what type of businesses do you like to invest in? What are the characteristics you look for? We, we look for anything that gives us a tailwind, basically. We will, we've constructed the fund to be in the best asset class. And then there's loads of different things that predict future outperformance. You know, low beta is an outperforming asset class. You know, everyone knows that various types of insider buying are a good thing. The, uh, the best things are the price to sales ratio. Various things give us a tailwind. So that helps. Then thematic investing gives us a tailwind. That's mainly based on demographics. So, for instance, you all know, everyone knows that, say, pets or cemeteries or coffee, they, these are things that have been growing in importance over time. Well, the pandemic speeded everything up so, so we can look at the way these themes are evolving quickly. And again, that can, comes our way. One theme that we've been um, making a lot of money in recently is the great outdoors. This is a way of tapping into the millennials' desire for experience. So things like caravans, you know, boats, anything to do with the wonderful outside world has been making us a lot of money. And that accelerated in the pandemic as we evolve. And these stocks have done very well. And we now draw by analogy to the roaring 20s, the 1920s, before we examine what will happen in our roaring 20s, we go to the 1920s to look at, look at behavior coming out of the flu pandemic, coming out of the First World War, and you see a great desire for experience, and you can feel that in yourself, the need to feel alive again. Let's get outside. Let's feel alive. Let's get an experience. Now, these things are quite difficult to monetize in the market, but we, we, we have some ways of playing that. But overall, in answer to your question, the main thing that we look for is to combine, combining all those factors together. We look to be cheap. So a lot of people will say, well, I can't, you know, that's all absolutely wonderful and you're going great and you've gone great. But the American market, S&P 500, it's 24 times trailing earnings, never been so expensive. I don't care. And, you know, that's true enough, but it's nothing to do with us because we're in small cap and value. Even after a big surge recently, the trailing multiple on our portfolio is 12 and a half. So we're half the rating of the market. And the market's only highly rated because interest rates are low. So it's just an interest rate driven phenomenon driving stocks like Tesla to huge PEs. And that when you think Tesla's market cap even now is at 600 billion, you can see how that weights the S&P to a higher than expected PE multiple. So that's not a concern. We want cheap stocks, we're in cheap stocks. And then having got these cheap stocks, we want them to be in a theme, one of our themes. And we want them to also to have these other tailwinds, these other features, which will predict future outperformance. That's quite a lot of filters. It really is a lot of filters, but um, we've still got 130 stocks that have got past most of them in some form or another. You said you um, had just over 130 stocks in your portfolio. Why do you hold so many? What's the strategy behind that? <laughs> well, the strategy is if it, if, it, if, it gives us a, if it gives us a tailwind, let's have it because it should outperform. But there's one, one thing that people might forget with the very small stocks which is that they don't take very much work because they don't do very much. Consider one of our small stocks might only make a news announcement every quarter when they report. They report their earnings, they talk about them, very good. Our average market cap, our mean market capitalization is $400 million. So 
not so many workers, not so much going on. Compared with Amazon, one and a half million workers making news announcements every day, it would be if we just had two stocks, Apple and Amazon, we would have to do more work keeping up than with our 130 stocks. Our 130 stocks, if you combine their market caps, will have a lower market cap than those companies which have a market cap of nearly $3 trillion between them. If you think about it, it makes sort of sense, really. Those two, you know, the big companies are in the news every day, you know, introducing new products, getting fined, you know, every, our stocks are not. They're easy to follow. And, it, and if, if, if they do something, for instance, because, because I've been doing this more than 40 years, I, I sort of know them. And so if, they, if something happens, like if I see a stock that we don't own, which is in line with one of our themes, which is fairly cheap, and then I see the, the chief financial officer buying himself some shares, I don't need to know a lot about that company. You know, we have this feed from the SEC, it's public information. You know, immediately he's filed. We know, well, we just put 20 basis points into the portfolio. We know there's a tailwind. We don't have to monitor this every day. The chief financial officer's done that work for us. I'll, I'll ease into the situation. I'll slowly catch up with why he may have seen fit to do this. We'll, we'll let it run. And once these things run, one of the great forward um, predictors of performance is, is um, momentum itself, which, of course, is very problematic because it means a, a disinclined to boot something out. But it does mean that uh, we've had stocks which we've had more than 10 years just because they're going up steadily and the story keeps getting better. I, I think the thing to focus on here, John, is that the market cap of our portfolio is less than the market cap of someone that's just got a handful of the big stocks. If you could talk about a few of the stocks in your portfolio, yeah, your thesis for investing. On the great outdoors, we, we've you know, got lots of companies which, which participate. We've got the company that makes canoes, the company that makes tow bars for caravans company that does paddle boards and fishing equipment. But I'm not going to talk about all those because they've had a good year and they've done very well for us. And I want to get more into the sort of 2021 theme of really pure experience, the sudden desire to feel alive. So one way that we've done this is with a stock called Sally Beauty. And Sally Beauty is the co company you go to if you want to change your hair color. If you want red hair, uh, you go to Sally Beauty. They, the, um, the, the, that hair colour is in um, nearly all the, the beauty salons in, in, in Canada, US, here, all over the place. And once you change your hair to a nice vivid colour, then they've really got you because you then need to change everything else about you. You need uh, those, that, um, that red eye liner, that, that uh, you know, you, you need your piercings coloured in. You need, to, you know, everything, everything on body adornment that needs to be fitted in, you are then their client. So the beauty salons are all sourcing their colours. Um, and when we're talking colours, we're not just talking, you know, the, the bigger market for colour, hair colour is, you know, just people tinting their hair. But the growth market is for this radical change people colouring their hair, these vivid colours. So this is a stock that we would have avoided forever. It's got many high street outlets. We would want nothing to do with it. We haven't been in the high street for 15 years because we're terrified. We're terrified of Amazon rolling over everything. Suddenly, this is where we want to be. Their, be their beauty salons are where, suddenly where people want to go to, to get the makeup and, and, and get kitted out. 
Only this weekend, there was actually some some data came out. We've been in this stock a while. We could see the trend coming, but the data's come out that the just a record amount of desire for tattooing, piercings, is just going through the roof. And this is people, you know, the, the YOLO thing, the you, you only live once, let's get out and do that thing we always wanted to do because we want to feel alive. And by the way, we're not going back to the office anyway because we're going to work from home. Sally Beauty is the play. And you think, well, in such rapid growth, you know, what, what are we going to have to pay for this? Well, we're paying 10 times earnings. We bought this in December. It's, it's been a double since then. It's got a lot further to go, this one, because it's the classic value stock. having I mean, been going down for years, you know, this sort of going into a shop to buy makeup and so on sort of became passive when you could do it from Amazon, but suddenly it becomes an experience. So, uh, so people are now flocking back there, and they also want the product. I mean, the demand for the products turned around. So what you've got here is, is the most dynamic stock price action you can get. It's a, it's a value stock. It's a rundown value stock going back to being a growth stock, and that's what they call a turnaround candidate. And turnarounds gives you the best appreciation of all. That's one. For people looking at this stock, this is a $21 stock. It, it, it'll do about $2.40 this year. Wall Street will then get into some debate as to whether it's a one-off. But it won't be because once you start going down this route, once you start, start getting into body adornment, um, it's not something you're just going to say, well, next year, well, I'm going to try and rub it all out again. As they say in their earnings call, you know, once you're in, you're in. You know, you're, you're, you're part of the part of the team. So um, there we are, Sally Beauty. There, there's a company that's changing us into a new species, a new beautifully adorned um, species of human being, um, courtesy <laughs> of the pandemic. Shall I do another okay. one, John? Yeah, what? please. And what's your second stock to talk about? The second one to talk about is uh, Builder Bear. It's a stock which has a, a wonderful brand name in that everyone through the generations remembers it. You know, that sometime or another, as a child or taking a child, they've been there. Yet this stock peaked in 2005, been going down for effectively 15 years. And Wall Street made the assumption that it was going into the ground rather the same sort of action as Blockbuster. There's one thing that was different from Blockbuster, which is that Blockbuster uh, had funded their expansion on debt and Bilderberg hadn't. So it went into this pandemic, actually, with its only liability being all those £20 vouchers that were sitting unused because all the builder bears were, were closed. And these are not liabilities at all, really, uh, because they attract people back to the stores. So builder bear was looking like it was going into the ground. The shops were all closed. Wall Street was very firmly of the view that toy shops were going the same way as Blockbuster because... Toys R Us had busily killed all the independent toy stores except Build-A-Bear. And then to celebrate doing that, three, four years ago now, Toys R Us then went bust itself. And that was it, really. The pre presumption is that Amazon was going to be the toy company. And besides, children don't want toys anymore, do they? They just want iPads. So it seemed like the whole game was up. Uh, those terrible old dogs, you know, Hasbro and um, Mattel, who supply the toys, ever-declining market, would do them just through Amazon, and the game was totally up for all the toy shops. So that was why Build-A-Bear was head heading towards zero. But it did have the brand name. We when we bought into the stock, we were paying less than $100,000 for every Build-A-Bear store, which is incredibly cheap. Today, you can buy the stock for uh, $16.00. It's just earned 60 cents in the last quarter. 
And yet um, Wall Street was expecting it to make another huge loss. And that complete surprise had the stock up 40% in a day. We, we've now tripled since we bought them in December. But the funny thing is, they've got a long way to go. Because if you just start to extrapolate those earnings out, you've got a $16 stock, suppose it, I mean, this last quarter wasn't a strong quarter, the Christmas quarter, you won't be surprised to hear is their big quarter. They, they do two and a half dollars this year. There's a lot more to the stores than Build-A-Bear. They can do all sorts of tricks for you going forward. They can um, bring a Build-A-Bear party to your child's at-home birthday party and, and, you know, all sorts of things that they can do to expand that brand name. It's a lot of stored up power. If people find that they like the experience of building a bear again, and um, I would say this stock certainly will be looking for another double from here. And if it doubles from here, it will still be below the 2005 high. Here's a stock. You think I'm talking about a massive multinational. You can still buy the whole company for $300 million, even today. You see, it's very easy to find an experience, experiential play that even Wall Street understands. You can say, oh, Disney, let's go to Disney. Well, Wall Street has actually managed to get that, and Disney is expensive. Build-A-Bear isn't because Wall Street, America being a forward-looking country, young country, optimistic, always looking forward, is very bad at doing nostalgia. And with Build-A-Bear, you're essentially playing the experience of nostalgia. So Wall Street's completely missed it. Thanks for sharing those two companies. They both look very interesting. Is there a person or perhaps a, a mentor or, or even a book you've read that you feel it has made you a better investor? At the moment, I think Peter Lynch, One Up on Wall Street, comes out in the mid-1980s. Peter Lynch is the most marvellous fund manager. He's, he's the one that built up Magellan Fund from 1979 to 1980, 1990. He achieves a compound rate of return of 28.3% a year. And that just shows what can be done. And he has a fair win behind him in those years because the type of investors investment he's doing, which is he's growth at a reasonable price. And that was the best environment for that. And that just shows what you can do when you've got a tailwind in your favor. His book, when I used to train brokers, that was one of the first, that was the top of the book list they had to read. The thing that I really rate Peter for was he really loved it. He was you know, he was the one before Google Earth. He was in the, in the car park. Family was stuck in the car, counting the customers. If someone carried out a television out of the Walmart, he'd pounce on them. You know, why have you bought that television and so on? That gave him leads that we can now do on the internet. I mean, his, that time is gone. You know, we, I, I do all this stuff on, you know, tracking down all this stuff on Google now. You can do all this. But he really pioneered this sort of investigative um, analysis because what he was really saying is that the, the way to win in the stock market is if you can see the world in a year's time, you win. And therefore, he's giving himself clues as to what's coming by this sort of investigative work. And if you, if you read one up on Wall Street, the marvelous thing about that book is it makes it sound easy. So that was always the first book I got people to read. Balance sheet, here's how you read a balance sheet. Two pages, that's all he needed. He was running billions and billions. And, and all the CFAs have done all their work. They don't need it on Wall Street. It gives you confidence. So where can listeners go to find out more about you? We've got a website. If you just Google Delisle Partners, then we come up. That's our webpage. 
Okay, Richard, that's fantastic. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, coming on to the podcast. It's been a pleasure to listen to you. Thank you very much for having me, John.